Is Jesus the kind of guy who starts arguments? Now, I grew up in, a, um, in an Episcopal church. And, you know, I guess it was probably high school when I first heard the idea that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus. Kind of freaked me out a little bit. But I, I embraced that. And so I would say I got converted in high school. And then I went off to college. And I remember it was really my last year in college that I came upon a book. Now, what you have to understand is I finally got my senior year in college. I'd sort of been drifting along as a Christian, kind of somewhat involved going to church, but not really growing, not really taking it very seriously. Um, And I, I remember my senior year, I ended up getting thrown into this Bible study thing that we started at Berkeley College Music where I went to college. And all the, all the folks in the group said, hey, our pastor's leaving, you should teach the Bible study. And I thought, oh, I don't know what to teach. I don't know anything. I need to go figure out what I believe even. And I need to read some books maybe to even figure out what the Bible's talking about. So I remember stumbling upon this book by a guy named John Stott, S-T-O-T-T. You may not know his name, but if you've ever heard of people like Tim Keller You know, John Stott is one of his heroes. So when he was a college student in the 70s, when I was a college student in the 80s, John Stott was one of the most important uh, Christian leaders, pastor, writer, pastor to church in downtown London. And he wrote a book that I stumbled upon called Christ the Controversialist. And I thought, now that's a weird title. Christ the Controversialist. It was only a couple bucks, so I bought it. And I cracked it open. And I'll never forget seeing and realizing that Jesus argued with people a lot. Like, I don't know where I had been living and what I had been learning, but somehow it had missed me that Jesus got in a lot of fights with people. And so often did he get in fights that there was enough material for John Stott to write an entire book just about the arguments that Jesus had with people. And it was the beginning, really. It wasn't just that I, oh, wow, that's interesting. No, it was the beginning of my understanding that maybe my preconceived idea of Jesus was too small. And that maybe I needed to at least be open to the fact that what I'd always heard about Jesus wasn't the full story. Because I had never heard that Jesus liked to pick fights with people. That wasn't the picture I had of him. Wasn't the picture I had of the kind of Jesus I wanted either, honestly. But John Stott was able to write an entire book about the arguments of Jesus. What's that? That's not working? Yeah, I am recording it on my iPhone, so we're good. Um, I do podcast these messages, so she was wanting to make sure that I was recording it. So, Christ the controversialist. Is Jesus the kind of guy that starts arguments? Now this chapter we're going to look at here, John chapter 3, part of this chapter is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16. Most anybody who's been raised in church knows, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Do you understand though that that comes at the end of an argument that Jesus has with a guy named Nicodemus? And not just an argument, but an argument that Jesus picks with this guy who didn't come wanting to argue with Jesus. But Jesus wants to argue with him. Let's read this story and then dig into it and see if maybe our idea of Jesus might grow a little tonight. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, 
a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do not understand these things? Very truly, I'll tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let's pray together and then we'll dig into this story. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us your good and faithful word. We pray now, Lord, that you'd send your spirit to open our hearts to receive this, your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus starts an argument. There's no getting around it. Nicodemus comes to him respectfully. There's different opinions on what he comes at night means. But most people agree that that was a time when religious leaders would have nice, calm discussions. So Nicodemus comes at night to have a rabbi-to-rabbi, teacher-to-teacher discussion with Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus about being born again. He doesn't ask Jesus about the kingdom of God. He basically addresses him respectfully and hopes to begin a friendship. And what does Jesus do? Truly, truly, I say to you, 
you must be born again. Lays down the gauntlet. This is like the dinner guest you don't want. <laughs> you know, like he's like hanging out. Imagine you're hanging out before RUF and you guys are having like small talk and you're just getting to know somebody. Hey, what's your major? Where are you from? And, and, and let's say I ask somebody and, and they respond like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. <laughs> like, that's just weird. And you'd be like, what? What do you mean? I, I don't even know what you mean. You say, truly, I say to you, you have to be born again. And you can't do it. God has to do it. It sounds like you're trying to pick a fight. That's basically, if you could sort of, sort of put aside maybe the way you've heard this passage before and enter into what it's actually saying. That's what it's saying. Nicodemus comes respectfully. Jesus picks a fight. Nicodemus tries to back away. Like, surely you don't mean that, Jesus. That's weird. That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus presses it again. And then Jesus even gets mad at him. Do you have an idea of a Jesus who can get mad? That's exactly what happens. Look at verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things. Now, the English translations might, um, well, they, they, can, they can obscure something that's important to see here. Um, it says, actually, in verse 1, that Nicodemus um, was a, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And uh, where does it say that he is a teacher? Most of the translations say a teacher. But it really is the definite article is there in the Greek. You are the teacher of Israel, Jesus is saying. In other words, he's not just a member of the ruling council. He's like the head teacher. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm talking about? You should understand what I'm talking about. And I'll explain why. It's because he's basically relating something that's in the Old Testament. He's relating Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 speaks about water and the Spirit. It combines images of cleansing and rebirth, new life. A heart of stone taken away and a heart of flesh given you. And in the very next chapter in Ezekiel 37, God tells Ezekiel to speak, to preach to a valley of dry bones. The skeletons of corpses that have died in a great battle. And the prophet's like, what are you, crazy? God says, speak. And he speaks, and the word creates life out of dead bones. God had been teaching his people about the way he was going to come to them and what it would mean. We read it in Ezekiel 36. So Jesus is saying, look, the time is not for having nice little calm, collected discussions about what you think and about what I think, and let's sort of have a discussion group while people are dying all around us. You must be born again. And if you don't even understand, you, the teacher of Israel, don't understand what I'm saying, it's a huge problem. Jesus gets mad at Nicodemus and charges his group. He literally says, you people. <laughs> Didn't your parents ever teach you it's not polite to say, you people? That's what Jesus does. You people. He lumps them all together. All you Pharisees. Now you've got to understand, the Pharisees are known in that day not as the bad guys. If you've grown up in church, you probably think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. Because you've heard sermons about them being the bad guys. You know Jesus fights with them sometimes. But everybody in the first century thought that the Pharisees were the best people. 
They were the ones who were authentic and cared and were zealous about living pure, holy lives. Because you see, in the days of Jesus, there was a king, a Jewish king, but he was basically in cahoots with the Romans. And he didn't really look out for the Jewish people. He really looked out for the Roman interests. And the Pharisees were the people who said, this is an abomination. We have a Jewish king who rather than caring for the Jewish people is just basically a lapdog for the Romans. And God will never come to us unless we can purify ourselves as a nation and get rid of this great abomination of this king who's Jewish in name only. Until we can get rid of him and restore purity to Israel and her religion, God will never bless us. That's what the Pharisees thought. And the people were very impressed with them and the rigor by which they lived their life. And now Jesus says to this Pharisee, this one who everybody else thought was like the guy really doing it right, sacrificing to do it right, Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel. You people don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing. So the first question I think this, this story raises for us is, are we open to considering a Jesus who's different than you thought him to be? Now maybe some of you are like, well, I always knew that Jesus argued with people. Maybe you think Jesus, like all religious people you know, just loves to argue with people for the heck of it. In which case I'd say, read the last few verses we read. God did not send his son into the world to condemn people. He didn't send his son into the world just to fight with people and make them feel bad. Okay? So we're going to talk about those last verses when we get to it. Jesus is picking a fight for a good reason. Because this guy doesn't understand what is required to be born again. He doesn't think that the problem is so severe that he needs to be recreated. You know, that's what this word born again means. You know, we lived in a, in a time in America. I, I grew up, you know, I was born in 64. So I remember in 1976 when Jimmy Carter was running for president, there was a famous episode where he was interviewed in Playboy magazine and declared that he was a born-again Christian. It was a strange place to do it. Uh, but it was, it was, I mean, you know, Time magazine proclaimed 1976 the year of, like, born-againism. And a lot of people, like, that was like, they'd never heard that phrase and now, I don't know what you think of that phrase, if you think it's sort of like these weird religious nutcases, but it's a biblical idea. And what it really means is, our need for grace is so big that we don't just need a helping hand, we don't just need some instruction, we need literally to be born again, to be recreated. And Jesus is saying, at the same time, you need something that radical, but he's also saying... You can't do it. You can't get it. It's sort of like kind of a fascinating thing that he does here. So Jesus is arguing with him. And, and the question we have to ask is, do you have a Jesus who argues? Is that, is that possible to even embrace? You know, I think so many of us sort of, if you think about what do you imagine even when you imagine a picture of Jesus, I hope... You don't imagine sort of the honey brown hair and the blue eyes and the silly smile. And it's just this effeminate, tender Jesus. Because that's not the picture of Jesus here. 
This is Jesus going toe-to-toe with the teacher in Israel and telling him he's wrong. Jesus cares enough to tell people they're wrong. It's not like he just goes around picking fights for the heck of it. But there are things that Jesus says are worth fighting about. Why does he start an argument here? Why does he start an argument? Because epistemology matters immensely. I know you may not understand what I mean when I say that. So I'm going to explain it. Epistemology is the study of how do you know what you know. College is a great time for you to start to think about that. Belmont thinks so too. That's why you have freshman seminar. I don't know if freshman seminar will function that way for you, but that's the design. is for you to think about why do you think what you think? How do you know what you know? Is it just a matter of the way you were raised? Is it just a matter of genetics? Is it just a matter of the fact that you were born where you were born? In the family that you were... Or is there something bigger? Is there even something beyond the ideas that float around within your tribe or your culture? Right? Those are important questions for you to ask. And that's what this debate here ultimately is about. You see where Jesus goes with this argument? He basically says... He basically slams the way Nicodemus would like to have a religious argument. But if you don't understand the Pharisees, you might miss this. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's being very offensive to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees said, truth is found in the Scriptures, and then what all of the holy teachers that we revere have said about the Scriptures. And so when the Pharisees wanted to settle debates about religious questions, they quoted famous rabbis that had lived before them. And they gathered these sayings together and they memorized them and they debated them. But in some ways it had insulated them and isolated them, cut them off from what the Bible was saying. That's part of Jesus' point here. You don't even know what the Bible's saying. When I say you must be born of water and spirit, you look at me like I'm crazy. But that's one of the most precious promises in the Old Testament. The precious promise of the New Covenant is that your sins would be washed away, cleansed, and that God would take away your heart of stone, (coughs) give you a heart of flesh, make you alive. And you're so caught up in what you can do and what you can't do, and what this rabbi said and that rabbi said, that you've missed the heart of God and what He's promised to do for His people. And now it's here. Epistemology matters. You see, Jesus says, Jesus doesn't quote any rabbis. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now Nicodemus, you know, is basically saying, look, Jesus, you're a good teacher. Jesus says, I'm not just a good teacher. Who I am is absolutely vital for you to understand what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. As long as you think I'm just a good teacher then you're going to think that all you really need is better teaching and more instruction. But your need is so much greater. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. Jesus even says, your reason, your reason shouldn't be uh, able to trump what God has said. Now that's kind of a scary thing. I'm not advocating for you to turn off your brains. Okay? 
And Jesus isn't either. But he is saying, you should be open to the fact that God might do things that would surprise you and mystify you. Nicodemus says, how can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born again? That's crazy. Can't happen. Doesn't make any sense, right? How does Jesus respond to him? Look what he says. He says, you're right, but you need to do it anyway. This is not a picture of Jesus sort of basically crafting a gospel that will be sort of easy entry and easily acceptable to everybody. Jesus says, look, you need to be born again. You have such a radical need and you can't possibly do it. And then he says this weird thing about the wind. Do you know what that's talking about? It's actually a key part of understanding Jesus' understanding of salvation here. What's important to know is that in Hebrew and in Greek, the word wind and the word spirit are the same word. So Jesus is really talking about the spirit when he's talking about the wind. And what does he say? It says, flesh gives birth to flesh, verse 6, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So here's what Jesus is saying in a nutshell. You need to be born again. You can't do it. But the Spirit is blowing. You can't control it. Sometimes you can't even see it, but you see its effects. And when this born-again thing happens to you by the power of the Spirit, you'll know. But it's not something you make happen. See, that's the great tragedy in the 70s and the 80s is this image that Jesus uses to say, my grace is grace. It's not something you do. It's not some formula that you follow. Grace is grace. That's the whole point of the imagery of being born again. You don't birth yourself again. But most evangelical Christians, most people raised in Bible-believing churches have somehow turned this image completely upside down and turned it into something that we do for ourselves. Isn't that weird how that happened? And it's, it's no wonder that people aren't really astonished at the gospel. Because it's basically, oh, I need to be born again? Okay, well, then what do I do? Well, you pray this prayer and then you birth yourself again. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you need to be born again, you can't do it, but the Spirit can do it, and you'll know it when you become alive. Now, I know that might raise some questions, and Jesus doesn't solve them all here. As we go through the semester, we'll talk more about this, but here's the point. Jesus is not a pathetic little Savior knocking at the door of your heart, begging that you give him a try. That kind of picture is demeaning. To the God of the Bible. It really is. And, but again, the end of this chapter, the end of the text, he doesn't come to condemn the world. God loves the world and longs for people to come to him. But it's not a picture of a weakling begging for you to give him a chance. Jesus says, you must be born again. You can't do it, but the Spirit will do it because it's not impossible for God. In other words, the first thing you need to understand about grace is it should bring you to the point where you cry out, God, save me, help me. Now what's interesting is we don't, we don't know how Nicodemus responds 
Isn't that interesting? The story doesn't say how Nicodemus responds here. But Nicodemus shows up later in the Gospels. You know that? Very interesting place he shows up. After Jesus has been crucified, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go and ask for his body. Seems that Nicodemus is now identifying with the followers of Jesus. Jesus picked a fight with him for good reason. It didn't necessarily convert him here. But God knew what he was doing. And eventually it seems that Nicodemus experienced what it meant to be born again. And it changed him. So much so that he was willing to publicly identify with Jesus when all the other disciples had scattered. Something happened to him, didn't it? Something happened to him. Epistemology matters. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? It's a very practical thing. It can be a kind of a philosophical, theoretical thing. There's lots of ways people answer it. Sometimes people say, well, it's my feelings. I just kind of go with my gut. Other people say, well, you know, it's reason. Whatever can be explained or understood by reason. Jesus says, God's word must be our epistemology. God's word must be our epistemology. And I will tell you, this is an incredibly practical thing. Think about this. Think about somebody with a, a poor self-image. Somebody who is a Christian, let's say, somebody who's a Christian, but yet really struggles to believe that God sees them as beautiful. Even though God's word says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, the more they think about God, the more they think of him as somebody who condemns them. Do you understand how epistemology is at the heart of that struggle? Because at the heart of that struggle, you have this debate. Who gets to narrate your story? Who gets to tell you who you really are? Does God? Can God trump what your heart says to you? I will tell you, honestly, it's hard to go very far in the Christian life unless God can trump your heart. It's a place in one of John's letters later in the Bible where he says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Epistemology, maybe you've never thought about it before, but it's an incredibly important issue. And so much of the question about what salvation is was wrapped around who gets to tell us. It really is. Who gets to tell us? Jesus says salvation is supernatural. It's something that God has to do. And as we see, look at the end of this passage. It's something that God wants to do. Right? So if you hear grace is supernatural and you hear that as a barrier, you've missed the point of this. You need to hear grace is supernatural and that's your only hope and my only hope. Because as this last part of this passage says, the darkness hates the light. The only way our hearts are going to run to Jesus is if he takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. But look at what Jesus says about how that's going to happen. Look at verse 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, 
So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Do you know what that's a reference to? Now this was, this was a really bold thing of Jesus to do to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The Pharisees think that Moses is their guy. They love the law of Moses. Do you know where this reference that Jesus is alluding to here comes from? This Moses lifting up the serpent? It's in the book of Numbers. Maybe not a place where you camp out and have your quiet times. And it's a weird story. Should I tell you about the story? I should because you want, I want to close with this and how it connects to Jesus. It's a story about how God's people, they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Maybe you've heard about this thing called the Exodus. They're wandering around in the desert on their way to the promised land that God has promised to bring them into. And regularly, they're murmuring and complaining about what God has done. One of these times, when they're murmuring and complaining about God, He sends poisonous snakes to bite people. And it sounds kind of crazy, but people die. And then the story gets weirder. Moses prays, and God says, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and then whenever somebody looks up at it, they'll be healed and they won't die. Now, all I got to say is that's such a weird story that God must be trying to teach us something through it. Now, some people would say, well, that's such a weird story. Like, I'm just going to throw that out. It's like silly. I think the way to think about it is everybody knows that's a weird story. But God does these kind of weird stories sometimes to draw you in to say, why did he do it that way? I mean, listen, if what he wants to do is just heal people from snake bites, why did he send the snakes in the first place? And if he really wants people just to be healed from snake bites, why does he have to make a bronze serpent? It take, probably takes a while. I'm not a, you know, a sculptor, but I think that it takes a while to make bronze and to cast it into a serpent, affix it to a pole. And then puts it up in the air, which seems like the most impractical thing imaginable because the snakes are at the ground. And the last thing you want to do when poisonous snakes are at the ground biting you is look up at a bronze serpent. And why a serpent? It's probably an allusion to the Garden of Eden. Serpents and murmuring about God and whether he's being good go together a lot in biblical stories. But I think there's something else going on. The thing that's killing them is the thing they need to look at. It's a weird story, but it's a story that Jesus says is pointing to him. And here's what it's teaching us. That God is interested in a healing that's deeper than snake bites. And the only way that's going to come is by the Son of Man being lifted up. And in John's Gospel, being lifted up, just like his hour, is a reference to the cross. It's not enough to be healed of snake bites. Okay, maybe you don't die then, but you're still going to die. But Jesus came to cleanse us, to give us a new heart, take away our heart of stone. And it's going to come through Him being lifted up. There's no way to come to Jesus except facing the fact that our sin is what put Him up there on that pole. That's what this is about. 
You need to be born again, Jesus says. You can't do it. The Spirit has to do it. But lest you think that I'm just holding out on you, the Son of Man has come to be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up, it will change you. You will see beauty in the most ugly scene imaginable. It's really a strange thing, isn't it? Even as we sang that hymn, that lovely source of true delight. We sing lots of things about beauty, but Christians understand that the ultimate picture of beauty is Christ crucified. And that deconstructs and reconstructs beauty forever, doesn't it? The most beautiful thing is the ugliest thing imaginable. But it's beautiful when you understand that Jesus did it because he would rather die than live without us. So he picks fights. Absolutely he picks fights. But he picks fights because we're dying. And he doesn't want any of us to die. He went to a cross, was lifted up so that we might be healed. That's the real Jesus. And I dare say, I'm happy that he picks fights. Because I so often think that I don't need something that big and that radical. I often think that all I really need is a little course adjustment. I just need to learn how to be a little more disciplined or how to be a little nicer and not yell at my kids as much. Jesus says I need to be born again and I can't do it. But he went to a cross and after he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent his spirit to take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. My last piece of advice, take the promises of God and make them the basis of your cries and your prayers to God. If you're here tonight and you're saying, I don't know if I feel like I have a heart of flesh, feel like I have a heart of stone, Jesus promised that, that the heart of flesh would be taken away if you look to Him. Plead that with God. I need my heart of stone taken away. I can't do it. Give me a heart of flesh. Just as you promised. And just as you sent Jesus to do. Let's pray together.